0: And listeners, welcome to this new episode of the Thought Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf. I am greeting you here from the outskirts of the lovely Austrian capital Vienna, and I am your host. This is season four of the Thought Hermes podcast, and today we are presenting to you the episode number 15 in that very season, and its name is O Culture Psychology. Today is Sunday, the 12th of April 2020, and for those who celebrate it, it's Easter Sunday. And for all the others, I wish you also a nice holiday wherever and in whatever way you celebrate those days our guest today on the show is well as the title suggests a philosopher and her name is patricia mccormack philosopher and occultist and that's a very particular mix right i would like also to wish you all the best for those holidays and in general, because we all know that those days where we are surrounded by health threats and are really difficult for many of you. Um, I wish you all the best safety and health and that you can use those days a little bit with for relaxation and also have some joy in your life. Maybe your occult practice can help you with that, uh, if at all you have time. And the possibility for it, especially in that splendid isolation that many of us are, are and need to be. The Thoth Hermes podcast you can find all details about on our website. It's on www.thothhermes.com. That is T H O T H E R M E S.com. On that website, you do not only find all episodes to download or stream, but also show notes to each single one of those episodes with links and information about our guests and all kinds of other information that you would like to find. Of course, there is also always the possibility to give some feedback on that web page and you can do that either directly on uh communication panel there where you can send us a message directly but also via a voicemail a free voicemail that you can send to us if you want to other possibilities to get in touch with us are email info at and of course the usual twitter and facebook pages I must say, there was a little more feedback lately, and I'm very happy about that. I like to get your opinions, your thoughts, and I'm really happy if you let me know how you think about the Thought Army podcast, what you like about it, what you maybe do not like so much about it, and I'm always happy to read you. Well, one of you, one listener thought the other day that I talk a little bit too much in the beginning of this show. Well, you know, I have to greet people. I have to say hello and a few other informative things about the show. Sorry about that if it's too long for one or the other. But um, if you really feel it's too long, I might once again remind you, well, if you had listened to the whole thing, you'd already know, um, (laughs) I'd remind you that we also use chapter marks so you can jump directly to the interview if you prefer to do that. And if, of course, your podcast player also supports chapters, but most of them do nowadays. Right. um, I did not only get more feedback lately, but also some of you sent me and I'm very grateful for that. uh, Some donations uh, and also a couple of more patrons on our Patreon page have come to join us and I want to thank you very much for that. Um, We have now 17 patrons, 17 17, uh, patrons on the Patreon page and in the meantime also the number of downloads each week are increasing we have now gone beyond 2600 last week for the first times and climbing each week and well once again i may say 17 is much better than eight as it was three weeks ago but 17 patrons for 2600 listeners Yes, there might be a few others who would wish to join. So if you want to do that, go on the website, click on that Patreon button or on the donation button if you prefer that. Or go directly on the Patreon website and look for the South Hermes podcast and become a supporter. Thank you so much. Well, before we start with our interview and meet Patricia McCormack in London, before we do that, once again, of course, we are going to play some music in this show, as always. Three pieces of music it is again, and. I'm very happy that over the last few weeks, within those different kinds of feedback that I got, I have also several of you who followed my call to show me your music, to play me your music, to let me know uh, about your works and also let me play them on the show. Already the last two weeks we had bands who offered their music for the Thoth Hermes podcast. And once again today this is happening so if somebody else wants to contact me and send me music that i can use may use and present your band and your music on this show do let me know i'm always happy about that and happy to do that so this week the three pieces that we will hear today is called is from a band called realism and they have a kind of meditation and ambient music but with rather rocky and harsh overtones and uh, I really liked what they sent to me and the details about them and links where you can find their music also online you will be able to find them in the show notes as always. So let's dive right away into their first piece of music for today again this band is called realism it um, comes the music comes from the early 2000s already so it's already a few years back that they recorded that but i think it's really lovely and lovely to hear that this first piece is called of the invocation of the invocation by realism enjoy by the band called realism a music piece played and performed in the early 2000s and now offered to be played on the south hermy podcast thank you so much we're gonna hear more of realism later on but now we're gonna delve right away into my interview with professor patricia mccormick she is Professor of Continental Philosophy at the Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge in the UK. But she is originally from Australia, as you can easily discover by her lovely Australian accent. Well, it is very rare, I must say, that you find an academic and a professor and doctor of philosophy who will also admit that he or she is a practicing occultist. So, this is the case with Patricia, and I think she has very many very interesting and fascinating things to tell us about all this. Well, um, how it all started, we're going to hear that, we're going to hear how not easy it was, especially in the beginning for her to confess that she is a practicing, practicing occultist, and um, that um, even nowadays, sometimes it's not always easy. Um, she is also the author of several books, like a book called Sexuality," That was her first one. The Animal Catalyst, a uh, recent one. She is also an activist on uh, animal rights, on queer uh, rights, on feminism and abolitionist. Um, she is a very outspoken and open-minded personality, and I'm extremely happy to have her on the show today. So let's go to meet Patricia McCormack. And you you should know already, because I think you're now all people who return to the Thought Hermes podcast regularly, that we are going to have a break after about 30 minutes into the interview where I will play another piece of music. But for now, let's go and join Patricia McCormack. Here comes the interview. It is a great pleasure for me tonight to welcome here on the Thoth Hermes podcast i must say a very special guest uh, uh, an unusual guest maybe even on this podcast because she is not only a philosopher but also a teacher at university in cambridge um we are speaking tonight to professor doctor as we like to say that in austria you know we like titles um patricia mccormack who speaks to us from the united kingdom and hello good evening very nice to have you here Well good evening Rudolf thank you pleasure. for asking me um, to be a part of this. To be honest exciting. um I only recently came across your writings and was fascinated by them. We will speak later a bit more about them and um I think what is so unusual in the first place maybe it's only the first place and you'll explain more about that in the second place um when you come across a teacher at university a professor of philosophy and then it turns out that she is also not only very well versed in occultism and, and, and uh, witchcraft, etc., but also um, probably active. But you're going to tell, tell us more about that. So, um, But first, let's start at the beginning. Um, I think you're Australian by origin. Uh, so where did it all start? How did you become the Patricia McCormack that we know today? And uh, well, where does it all come from?
1: Well, um, I mean, you couldn't make up the the, the kind of story that I'm going to tell you, but um, I went to Catholic girls' school, and so I was taught by nuns. And one of the – as you can imagine, I wasn't, you know, a popular sporty kind of girl. I was the girl in the library at lunchtime. And my high school had the volumes Man, Myth and Magic, which a lot of your listeners will be really familiar with – In the 1970s, the UK produced these kind of weekly magazines that then got bound into, I guess it's an encyclopedia of, I would say back then, Mm -hmm. to me it was an encyclopedia of witchcraft and occultism, but, you know, it it was anthropology, it was sociology, it was certain forms of philosophy. And um, so I sat in the library when I discovered these (laughs) and read them cover to cover as a very impressionable young person. And this is after I'd already developed a taste for Hammer Horror Films. And I was pretty interested in the mm-hmm. sort of more tenebrous well, ideas how, of life. Where, where
0: were you then? Very you early was, on. Just moved
1: in. Uh, my first... Where were you? So, okay, so oh, my first wow. crush was Christopher <laughs> Lee when I was about nine. Uh in, in Taste of Blood of Dracula, and I just remember, you know, the image. But um, so when I started reading Man, Myth and Magic, that would have been about 12 years old. And uh, I kept revisiting them because I obviously wasn't able to understand them completely. And, you know, the more I read, the more I learned, and I've always been very bookish, so I got very structured in my interest in occultism. And also the fact that these things were in my Catholic girls' school library didn't give me any indication that there was anything uh, <laughs> transgressive or anything uh, forbidden about them. You know, if they're in our library, and our library was very strict, they wouldn't let any books in that had sex yeah. or, you know, anything that's an interesting situation because
0: normally you to would so, um, have the opposite. You're in a Catholic school and you have to, by protest, go out to get it. But for you, it was just the way around basically, yeah.
1: Exactly. So, and, um, you know, my favorite teacher, she was a, a, a nun who back then would have been in her 80s, and she taught us classics, and she was obsessed with uh, Hellenic culture, and she taught us Medea as a feminist. She taught us Clytemnestra as a feminist. So, in a really strange way, I had a very uh, optimistic and a very encouraging embrace of occultism at a young age. And so it never, you know, it was sort of. It was part of being a good Catholic, which I wasn't really. I was already an atheist at sure. a young age. But, you know, we still had to go to mass at school every day. And but you, you were definitely taught that um, good Catholics were also good classicists and they were also, you know, very knowledgeable in the occult because you have to know your enemy and you have to know the, the structure mm-hmm. of um, the religious world and the mystical world and um, – so it did It did really conform very well to a, an idea of being uh, an intellectual was also being somebody who knew as much about occultism mm-hmm. and mysticism as somebody who knew their classics, who knew their literature, that kind of thing. So that was my sort of formidable youth. And um, then I went to university and I majored in classics and philosophy mm-hmm. and um, Egyptology. And so –
0: that was it was Australian all very then, much or, of a crossover. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But I think, yes, yes. So I did my undergraduate and my mm-hmm. PhD in uh, Australia in Melbourne uh, at Monash University and um, I was always still interested. So my MA thesis was on uh, themes of mm-hmm. transvesticism and gore in Euripidean tragedy. So the idea of... Not, not transgression, but the idea of crossing different states and of the in-between and of the inaccessible as a means to metamorphosis and transcendentalism, but always in a very infleshed way, and I guess that's my Catholic upbringing, you know, it's Catholicism as it? vampirism and cannibalism dressed up as mysticism. Um, so those kinds of relationships with the flesh and the body, but also the metamorphic and the in-between, were always present both in my interests in terms of film and literature and in terms of mm-hmm. the philosophies that I so, resonated and, with. Um,
0: was Australia at the time a particular place where that would happen? Or, or uh, I, I wouldn't imagine This was urban Australia, right? Well, this or? is
1: Melbourne, so it's, you know, yeah. it's a big city. But all of the occult books that I got were from, we had one Theosophical Bookshop. Right. And there was no sort of witchcraft bookshop, so there was nothing like Atlantis or Treadwells or anything like that in Mm -hmm. Melbourne. It was just – and the theosophists were quite conservative, so you had to order a lot of stuff in and they'd give you the side eye, you know, why are you ordering this in. But they would get it for you. Um, But in terms of rituals or covens or groups like that, it was um, was a very solitary affair. So that's why my indoctrination was a self-indoctrination because I educated myself – My early rituals were always alone. Mm -hmm. And I guess the closest you would get are people that sort of thought they were interested in the occult, but it ended up that either they were interested in, I don't know, metal or sex parties or something like that. It was Mm -hmm. usually – it was a ruse for something else. So I didn't actually really fully emerge into a community of occultism until I came to London. Uh,
0: Which is interesting because um – Especially hermetism, but a lot of the occult um, studies are actually very open-minded from the very beginning, and and are very intellectualizing. And that's not what's happening often in orders, or 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 as you say, they they more go into socializing and not into that in-depth knowledge. And basically, you you did it all by yourself. Right? Yeah,
1: I I have been accused of being one of those dreadful people who think you need to read everything before you start doing <laughs> rituals. But to be fair, I think that one of the reasons I did that is because for me, I, you know, I was taught that certain kinds of rituals shouldn't be done on your own. They were dangerous. And mm. um, so I did feel like reading would give me a certain safety net or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But now um, I'm very much an advocate of you don't have to read everything. What I don't like is people that claim to know a lot and haven't read a lot. But yeah. <laughs> I am I am a big fan um, of encouraging people, especially younger people, to perform rituals and to create their own magic uh, without needing permission from anyone, without needing permission from any kind of hierarchical system because, as you right. know from my work, the hierarchical structures are something I really am very resistant
0: yeah, against. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that brings us already then into the into your last book when we we will speak about our culture. I recall a phrase where you say a Requ- culture requires no guru beyond self inspiration, right? So that's maybe a little bit already what you pre-configured in your in your early times in Australia.
1: Well, I did I did want a community, but then when I came to England and I got one, I sort of didn't want it anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, <I> well. Guess- <laughs> I think many of us know the feeling. Yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, and also, I as somebody who has uh, led various rituals, I don't like being the leader. Being the leader is boring, and it's too much responsibility, and you don't get to enter into any kind of gnosis or any kind of interesting scenario. You know, you have okay. to, I, you have to sort of be the the parent or be the guide, and I'm not that great at doing that because okay. Um, so I led a chaos ritual in Stockholm in um, January, January. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't enjoy leading it, but uh, most of the people there were not experienced occultists. They were art students. They loved it, mm-hmm. but I, I got very little out of it. So, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not fully comprehensive of the pleasure to be found in power.
0: Right. Right. Um, I make a note of that. I think we'll come back to that <laughs> later. <laughs> Let's follow your path then. So I think the next step from Australia was London basically already, yes, right? So um, in
1: 2001, I moved to London mm. and I got my job at ARU in Cambridge in 2002. Right. And I've uh, commuted between London and Cambridge Ever since and um, obviously moving to London, one of the big pushes was looking for a kind of community or looking for a place where occultism wasn't so isolating or frowned upon Mm -hmm. and just being able to do things like have access to bookshops, have access to artworks and all of those kinds of things that I guess Europeans can take for granted but – you know, us us colonialists, <laughs> we, we don't have a lot of access to a lot of really enriched environments. Right.
0: It probably depends on which part of Europe you're talking about, because um, even if my part of the world here, the German-speaking world, has a lot of history back in the centuries uh, with occultism, I think nowadays um, it's more the northern and the, the western part of, of Europe that that has that feeling probably. So basically, I think in London, you're probably at one of the epicenters of that, at least in Europe, right?
1: I I would agree with that. Yeah, definitely. I still, now I have to revert back to how I felt when I arrived in London, because it's so normalized here now that, Mm -hmm. for example, for the first time I get to publish about my occultism in a mainstream philosophy book, whereas... 15 years ago I wouldn't have dared and mm. possibly the publishers wouldn't have allowed it. Accepted, yeah. So I think that the London scene is a really diverse and really positive one for all people from all around the world to be able to express both an academic and a practical relationship with our culture that is valid and that is given a lot of kudos in a way that it used to be something you concealed
0: mhm mm-hmm. now from what you're saying and also the reasons why you came to london and all this uh, it seems to me that occultism is an, a central part of your life right so it's something you're you're circling around i don't know how you would define no, it yourself, but it's not accessory it's it's really something not, that's really important to you
1: absolutely so i i I'm an anti-theist. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Mm -hmm. even engaging with the idea of believing in God. Mm -hmm. But I do often find myself seeking um, certain kind of vivid structures or incandescent structures that can allow me to access creative trajectories that I might not have thought of before.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Some people would call those forms of gnosis or guidance or – And it's probably the same motive as religious people when they look to their religion.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I'm incredibly interested in the power of the potentiality of our mind, not the possibility because possibility is what you're told is possible or isn't possible, whereas potentiality coming from a kind of Spinoza's background is all Mm -hmm. about the absolute unknowability of thought And in a lot of philosophy, actually, that I talk about, for example, people like Foucault and Blanchot, they talk about this concept of accessing outside, so outside language and outside image, outside representation, outside of knowledge as Mm pre-established. And to me, my occulture helps me access that. So the kinds of trajectories that I followed and I did really go down a very traditional path. Like, So I started with the, um, uh, Agrippa and LFS Levy and those kinds of right. people. Then I, went, I read all of uh, Crowley and I sort of indoctrinated myself into the tenets of both OTO and then later IoT. And now I'm at a stage where I have selected what works for me Mm -hmm. as a structuring principle or a set of principles and they are what I return to. But at the same time, because I've been so immersed in it, I'm also able to create and adapt on my own, which I think is really the fundamental honour that we get from a good relationship with occulture that we're able to create on our Mm -hmm. own.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, personally, I think that uh – is exactly the path you should take that you should arrive at some point at your own structure giving um, system so to speak. Um, But did you go through that path or come to that to that to that uh, to that place by going through different order memberships or when you talk about getting to know the OTO and IOT and stuff, did you really engage in them or did you just learn about them? How, how was that for you? Were you always that solitary searcher or did I you... was
1: always a solitary searcher. So I mm. would have to order these books and they would take weeks and weeks and weeks to come. And you would have to talk to people at the Theosophical Society to order them mm-hmm. for you because they thought Alistair Crowley was a Satanist. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they'd never even heard of chaos magic and, um, They didn't really know anything. And Austin Spare, you had to sort of scrape and find things. (laughs) And um, so, you know, I I sometimes have this idea of I should have joined an order properly, but by the time I actually got to London where I could have become a member, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I'd already exhausted my curiosity about them Mm -hmm. in the way that, I wouldn't really particularly want to be be part of the order that, you know, was part of a structure. But that doesn't mean that I haven't been involved in a lot of groups since coming to London. Um, I was in the esoteric order of Dagon until Steve Ash died
2: mm-hmm. and we
1: did some really wonderful rituals together and mm-hmm. I – I'm really close friends with Phil Hine and we've had some kind of really amazing ritual discussions and Mm -hmm. debriefs and stuff like that. So I do also keep a sense of structure, but I just think that I got here too late and (laughs) I would have already been a bit fed up with some guy telling me what to do and where to go and what to say. So, maybe it too, was a bit too late.
0: late in your personal development, you mean? Yes,
1: I think so. Yes. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean,
1: that's not to denigrate any of the orders. Um, but I think that for some people, that kind of structure is very positive. And for me, it's a little bit, it doesn't operate the function of what my relationship with occulture is for.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you were probably starting in Australia at the time just when the Internet was not yet what it is today. Oh,
1: no, 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 Uh,
0: no. um, no. And so you were still the bookie type. You needed the books and the contacts and all that. And do you think for someone who would start at that age or a bit older today, um, given the fact that all of this is available uh, around on the Internet, a personality like you would have a better choice and would be easier for him or her or would that make it even more difficult? What do you think?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think, I think that it depends on things as basic as confidence and relationships. Like some people need, some people need someone to look up to. Some people need a structure and some people like to go rogue. And so I think that would have a lot more, which is why I don't necessarily denigrate any particular structural system or any Mm. order. I think that some people benefit really, really highly. And I think that one of the reasons that, for example, the OTO is so popular in America is because so many parts of America are so uh, Christian to the point of fundamental fascism Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. (laughs) – If you are interested in a different form of spirituality, it can, it must be hugely isolating. So having a community must be such a, a wonderful thing. But
0: A relief almost, yeah.
1: Absolutely. But to me, I think that it really would be contingent on the kind of area you're growing up in. And I guess now young people have the internet so they can post their own lodges. I guess they can have Zoom lodges. I don't know. Um But I also think that magic has become a lot more hybridized, which means that there are people who are interested in very beautifully chimeric versions of Mm
2: -hmm.
1: when I was first opening myself to occultism. I would have said, all right, this is this, this is that. You know, you have to choose one, and I sort of saw them as narrative or incremental or whatever. But I think now you can see the incredible imagination that is adapting different occult beliefs and practices for people's particular environments and circumstances. And this is most particularly true in, like, for example, the way that the queer community has embraced certain forms Mm -hmm. of occultism and adapted Mm -hmm. it the way that traditional witchcraft, which I remember used, some of my friends used to be very adamantly white witches and now... You see a lot more young people saying this whole bifurcation of black and white and left-hand path and right-hand path is just absolutely redundant and stupid and why do we even talk in binaries anymore? So I think that people have a level of sophistication now that is sometimes a lot less obedient and sometimes people don't like to be told you have to do it this way, you have to do it the right way Mm -hmm. because ultimately it isn't working and so if it works... Then telling someone they're doing it wrong or right doesn't seem to have a very gracious function.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you're linking those things. I think that's that's fascinating. And um, I would like to ask you for maybe. One or two definitions because um, you mentioned the word occulture several times, also always in the context of my occulture, which is a particular way of using that word. And occulture is one of those words that has gotten over the last 10, 20 years so many kinds of definitions, right? Um, what is your occulture? How would you, I mean, not necessarily what your personal path is, I mean, how would you define what occulture is? That's my question.
1: I think for me, our culture describes the way in which, as you say, in the last fifteen to twenty years, any practices that used to be considered somewhat transgressive or old fashioned or blasphemous or nature loving, you know, so so many different variations that have so many different relationships, but basically even even the ones that include Judeo Christian practices. But these kinds of, shall we say, mystical arts or mystical theologies that don't have God at the centre or a Judeo Christian relationship at the centre, those practices have become increasingly celebrated as not either wicked or as something that belongs to the Middle Ages. And there, therefore, is a kind of culture of occultism that celebrates it. So that's really, to me, it would be like a sociology word: a culture that celebrates practices that are considered esoteric and belong to spiritual arts that Mm -hmm. are not Traditionally Judeo Christian or part of an established religious system.
0: But they can be theological anyway, but just in, in a different way. Of course. Way, right? I mean, yes.
1: to me, like, you know, to me, reading Teresa of Avila is an occult practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, oh, of course, yeah. yeah, so it doesn't exclude or include anything. It's just, yeah, it's just those things that are esoteric, those things that try to access a certain kind of metaphysics, but without wanting to exhaust them through seeking yeah. proof or verification like use arts I guess so
0: they live by themselves so just yes, yes, yeah, the Christian tradition yeah
1: and mm. they're very living entities this is the other thing that occulture culture maybe is such mm-hmm. a hard word to pin down because these are such living entities that a lot of people think oh you're you know you're you're dealing in these old-fashioned you know some people say in ages some people say mm-hmm. they're they're you know, the dark arts of the 20th century, but they're not. They're just alternate trajectories that are belonging to people who have certain kinds of curiosity that are different to the standard, tedious, boring, anthropocentric questions of who is above me, why am I here, who created me, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I think occultism is interested in different questions.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Okay yes see where we're getting and we're getting at uh, at that a little bit later um because but i think that's a fascinating link you made there because i've never seen it like that um opens all uh, and made a few notes of a few other questions a little later on but um you just also said old-fashioned some of those things are old or seem to be old-fashioned let's put it that way and how do you how do you solve the sometimes put up argument that this old-fashioned, this this traditionalism, this conservatism that occultism can be or is sometimes accused, um, as opposed to the activist side that it has. Um, So I personally get sometimes not accused but looked at because, well, you, that must be a conservative thing because you're an occultist. I'm not at all a conservative, right? So how do you solve that 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 equation? How do you answer that?
1: Well, I think that the best way to answer it is to look at people's motivations and to why they are interested in occultism and what the purpose of their practice is. Mm. And if it is about this horrible, tedious reclamation of some conservative, pure fantasy of genealogy, Mm. that's not, to me, occultism. That's just really dubious and also tedious, crappy politics, really.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: If you're looking for a kind of experimentalism that is independent of dogma, any kind of dogma, then that, to me, is how I would describe the status of occulture now so Mm -hmm. the the very Mm -hmm. the very right-wing conservative occult groups i'm not even sure to what extent they're occult because that's it's not really differentiating their rituals and their goals from any political party or even the daily rituals that we have that make us who we are Mm -hmm. i i think that like anything, like music, like art, like religion, you've got very purposeful people and you've also got very purposeful techniques. And so I just make very clear when people ask me about that that every group has the, you know, dodgy, dubious, conservative version and every group has other people that aren't like that. And maybe that explains why I've been resistant to joining any lodges because... yeah. Not that the lodges are always conservative, but a lodge for it to function has to have certain legislative structures. And for me, that doesn't chime well with the way that mm-hmm. our culture incarnates in my own practices.
0: At least it is very hard to to distance it, right? To 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 be in the structure without getting that little dogmatic um, pressure. Let's put it that way. Absolutely.
1: And the idea of degrees and the idea of ascending. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, this is all very Christian and capitalist. And
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: I'm more. Mm-hmm. I'm more about a rhizomatic understanding of occult. Yeah, where, absolutely, you
0: know, absolutely. Another uh, short definition. I'd uh, like to ask you from. Maybe I think that's probably easier. Um, queer, queer. You said that several times. Of course, we know what queer means. But there are basically two options of how to use that. Were one of being different and utter that was the original the original sense of that word right and later on it became more uh, in relation to lgbt uh, communities etc and so when you say queer do you mean we, which of the two or maybe even a third definition do you do you mean by it
1: i use the term queer in the actual sense of the word which is both senses which is something that just doesn't fit into any category something that shows that categories aren't capable of containing what they claim to contain and also because I did a lot of feminist philosophy in my undergraduate and postgraduate degrees was queer was still like a super new word Um, There was the G for gay, Mm -hmm. but even Mm -hmm. lesbian theory wasn't really an established kind of theory. There were a couple of theorists but not many. And then T was a very, that still had a few years to come. Um, But what I like about queer is that it's a reclamation word in a very similar way to how especially young people and young women are reclaiming the word witch as something that is meant to be a denigration but it is an empowering thing because really for both terms, both queer and witch, if it's hurled at you in a way that is denigrative, it's really not defining you as anything. Mm -hmm. And so for you to say, yes, I am that, is taking away a lot of power, but also defining yourself through your inability to be defined. What does it mean to be a witch? What does it mean to be queer? So all that I think is really Required of queer theory, because you can't really say queer identity because that's an oxymoron, is is a resistance to categorization and an embrace of the metamorphic mobility of subjectivity, of identity, and its multiplicity. Mm -hmm. And a general disdain and interrogation of categories and their uses and functions.
0: Right. This is almost an occult thing that when you define the word, it loses its own value. Right. Mm. (laughs) And the best
1: words are the words that you you know that they mean something structurally, but you don't know what they mean. And queer is a perfect example of that. What does queer mean?
0: Absolutely. No. True. True. Very true. Very true. I very much liked the way one can talk to Patricia McCormack. She is a very direct person. She is open minded. You can address everything very straightforward and directly. And top of all, she is really bright and has very, very interesting things to say. Lovely talk with her, I must say that Australian in London who teaches philosophy in Cambridge. Yes, well, it's the interval, the little break we take always where we will now listen to another piece of music. And again, as I promised it before the interview, this is a second piece given to us by the band Realism. And this piece is called Pritivi. And those of you who know the language of Sanskrit also know that this word Pritivi means Mother earth. So I think the title and also the music goes rather well with what we are discussing today and um, which we are going to continue to discuss further just after the break. For now it's up to realism and TV. TV, another piece by the band realism okay let's go back right away to the interview with patricia mccormack today and here we're going to talk more about sacred activism and also about her latest book an a human manifesto which is a rather interesting and book with rather interesting and also quite disputed um, thesis in there you're going to hear that in a minute and we're also going to ask patricia what is an old goth because that's the way she called herself in an interview that i read all of this in a few seconds um, just some more seconds before that where i'm going to announce the third piece of music which we are going to hear right away at the end of that interview. Again the band Realism is going to be with us and the title of the third piece is called Tejas, not Tejas, you pronounce it differently but you spell it the same way T-E-J-A-S and it's not Tejas, it's not the Spanish name for Texas, it's not the Indian fighter aircraft TEAS either but TEAS is a Sanskrit term I think it's also mostly used in Ayurveda which means that inner fire that we all bear with us and about that inner fire TEAS realism is gonna mm, present us their piece of music but before that of course let's go right back to London and meet again with Patricia McCormack. I would like to throw now another term into the into the interview because I think that's a term I haven't read it in your or heard it from your talk so but I think it's very much there at least for me when I hear and uh, read you. Um and that's the term sacred activism, right? Um, I like that much as a as a as a combination of the occult and occult culture on one hand and on the other hand with everything that also you like to talk about, like the past and future of humankind, like the reproduction uh, as a form of transhumanism and things like that. Um, So I don't know if you have, uh, are really, well, you're familiar probably, but if you like that term, but um, would you, what would you think about sacred activism? And would you see yourself a little bit part of that type of activism?
1: I don't know the, term as a kind of structural group. But I don't
0: think it is. Right.
1: No? Okay. So, I mean, the only thing that would worry me is that for activism to be sacred, does that mean there's a profane activism? <laughs> if, if I was going to employ sacred activism, I would also want it to include huge amounts of profanity.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah.
1: But I'm assuming what it means is using occult techniques for activism. Right. And in my opinion, it's an incredibly powerful tool because it's about using, as I said earlier, things that make you incandescent, things that make you encounter worlds and experiences that we don't yet have a vocabulary for in order to fight problems that we don't yet have the vocabulary for. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to default to some pre-established polemic or some pre-established manifesto and say, well, this is my activism and this is how I find it because by making yourself think otherwise through various rituals and exposures to different occult practices, you can adapt your techniques and you can think in a very lateral and different or uh, multiplicitous way
2: mm-hmm.
1: because, as we know, activism is very environmentally specific depending on your region, depending on your time, depending on your capacity to act and Mm -hmm. on the affects that you have the capacity to produce. And so that means that any kind of system, which I don't really like using the word system, but any kind of practice that has as its very core accessing things that you have never thought before and experiences and states that you have never had before is a really good way to me to be able to think of new techniques to fight problems we've never seen before.
0: Right. Would you have a better word than sacred activism for that type of activism?
1: Well, I I use, I mean, I use the word art. I think art is activist. Hmm. And I think that, Occult practice is an art form.
0: Occult practice, certainly to me, is an art form. Yes.
1: Yes, yeah. exactly. So I would see it as another form of artistic practice as activism. And you know, really, when you when you when you talk about evaluating art, you're not really talking about whether art is good or bad. You're mm. asking what it does. Right. What does this do? And if right. it's just repeating really boring and tedious repetitions of structures we've seen before, then it doesn't do much. Exactly. Similarly, I'm a bit wary of, you know, edge edge lord art I call it, where people think that art should be transgressive for its own sake. Because mm. what that does is it reifies the traditional structures that it's, you know, going against and it's also defining itself based on those structures. And what Absolutely. I'm what I'm most interested in is any kind of artistic practice, whether it's absurd or disgusting or profane or sacred or whatever that allows an encounter with unthought, with the unthinkable. And so I would say that sacred is nice as long as it's not excluding the profane or as long as it's not holding up this form of occultism to some kind of divine level that is exclusionary of anything
0: that comes from the exterior and is given, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Right. On the other hand, when you take art as the word, of course, then you go into the problem that many people will understand something else by it, because it's not commonly defined as such as you as you just defined it. So so that. When you speak about art, and we know how you think, then we we might make the connection. But in order to be able to do that, we would have to know your your thought, right?
1: So I guess that maybe practice is an important mm-hmm. word. You know, like occultism to me is a practice, yes, and art is an artistic practice, yes. So maybe if we include this idea of practice, then we see it as as always an active, affective form of changing trajectories in the world rather than art as an object or an item or a mm-hmm. purchasable thing
0: mm-hmm. in, in that regard uh, do you i think you you're working a lot with this with cinema and with the with the movies as as an art form uh, that's at least in your teaching i see that's part of your so my your, yeah
1: my first book was on film yes yeah
0: and um, but, but um, art is this a particular art form that interests you and why you, and do you think it has a particular role to play in that activism that we are talking about here? Or is this, was this coincidence or do you have other art forms or all art forms that you would see are working that same direction of
1: I don't activism? see, I don't, <laughs> I don't see a, a super, super like hard epistemic division between say mm-hmm. cinema or
0: music or,
1: music or anything like that, I think I, so the book I wrote on cinema was about our relationship with mm-hmm. the act of watching film rather than an anal- analysis of any films because I find people who analyse films incredibly boring
2: mm.
1: and <laughs> and you know, people who analyse art it's, as you said earlier, once you yeah. define it, once you tear it apart, you've eviscerated it but, and it may just be one perspective and that's great but I don't see that as producing action. So for me the epistemic divisions between painting and cinema and literature aren't necessarily as important as what they can do. So I personally don't you know we can we can address or acknowledge their specificity but I don't think that it's particularly necessary because if it makes us do then it's valid and that's why I don't really you know I have the areas of occultism that I have adhered to that have interested me the most but I would never denigrate any others because mm. what works works
0: sure sure is is art magic yes. Mm.
1: yes yes absolutely
0: is is consuming art magic as well no <laughs> okay, so if, you have to be the artist, right? Yeah.
1: No, no, no.
0: Okay, go if ahead. <laughs> you,
1: if you develop a symbiotic relationship with art, mm-hmm. then you are a magical practitioner. Right. So you don't have to be the artist, but it's sort of thinking about somebody who owns art versus somebody who enters into a relationship with art. Right. You don't have to own Benini, St. Teresa to enter into a relationship with St. Teresa and when you witness that sculpture you become an artistic practitioner Mm -hmm. you become, you create an alchemical relationship, you don't have to have made a film, if you can watch a film and somehow the alchemy between you and the film produces something in you that then changes other things, that to me is artistic activism and alchemy Mm -hmm. so being inspired and affected is a form of artistic practice, but owning or analyzing an art object is not.
0: Right, right, right. Very interesting, very interesting. Well, we were talking about um, activism also in the context, well, we didn't really talk about it, I just mentioned it about the past and the future of the humankind, right, for example. We are facing all kinds of problems. Uh, we don't have to speak about go into detail we all know what we are speaking about and even what's happening in those very days i think is a kind of a symbol at least to me i don't know how you see it of of what we are about to produce in this world and have produced so far um but um you just said a little bit earlier you 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 said that famous word anthropocentric right and um I would like to go a little bit into that because your latest book, the "An A Human Manifesto," um, uh, I thought it was very interesting. Also, it's a very interesting chapter on culture in it. But of course, it uh, it states a few things that um, are for many people, especially if they are too much linked to some divine context let's say or some outreach context who teaches them how to behave uh, they have a problem with that so maybe you want to talk a little bit about that and how that's related also to your to your occult thinking or, or how to your general thinking which is influenced by all your work in the occult
1: well i think so i guess what you're talking about are the the main premises of the manifesto, which is yeah. uh, that humans should cease to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, this is the thing that seems to have riled most people up. They they, they seem to be paying less attention. Certain certain demographics, Certainly. they're paying less attention okay. to the occultism, they're paying less attention to the artistic stuff. They're even not that fussed by the abolitionist vegan argument, mm-hmm. But they get very riled up by my proposal that we cease reproducing. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is inherently both an occult and a queer call, because to me creativity is about, and I don't mean production in a capitalist sense, I mean production in a a way that it redistributes flows of creativity and pleasure and things like that. That's production and reproduction is production of the same. Mm -hmm. So whether... Whether you're reproducing a piece of art that's been done a million times before and that's why it's rubbish or whether you're reproducing arguments that have been said a million times before and that's why they're rubbish or whether you're reproducing dogma from any religion under any circumstances, this limits the capacity for thought, for ideas, for intellectualism, for creativity, for mm-hmm. experiment. And I think that one of the things that secularism has shown is that even secular humans who don't believe in an afterlife cling desperately to one via breeding, via having children. <laughs> and oh, yeah. yeah. What, okay,
0: see what I mean, Yeah. Mm.
1: And what that says to me is that even when humans have run out of excuses, they still do stupid things to make themselves feel special. I'm a special person. I need to continue in the world. Now, I think that most people who practice a form of occultism know that one of the first and most liberating things that you do when you enter into occult practice, especially rituals and especially whatever kind of Gnostic ritual you enter into, you you know, the scary ones, the beautiful ones, all the different ones we experience, is the loss of self Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and the pleasure and the joy and also the philosophical and ethical importance of a loss of self. To me, the Anthropocene is all about trying to convince yourself that there's a self that you don't want to lose. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so I think that that was a real moment in my life where I realised that that loss of self is the only way that one can think outside of self, think outside of familiarity. And even this word familiar, you know, familial, familiar, you know, the structures that make us have our hierarchical role, and the way that family structures mirror religious structures and government structures,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's its ridiculous, it's hierarchical, it's stupid, and most importantly, it's arbitrary and people don't even have any reasons why they adhere to it anymore, which potentially is one of the reasons why I got so much hate because
2: mm.
1: people really didn't have an argument. And so they just got really angry because anger obviously is about concealing fear. People get angry because they're afraid and these people were afraid that they weren't immortal via their children Mm -hmm. and that they weren't special. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. now I know that uh, many occult practitioners believe in lives after this life and all of those kinds of things and – that, that works perfectly, but trying to believe that you live eternally through some kind of DNA is absurd and also borders on eugenic. Yeah. So yeah. it's not really – and nowhere in my antinatalism do I ever propose violence. In fact, yeah. if we cease reproduction, our responsibility, our burden of responsibility for how to lead – a creative and adaptive life is going to be much more emphasised. And I think that we're seeing this now more than ever, that yeah. all of the things we thought we couldn't do, right. we can do. So yeah. Yeah. unless we change these really boring, tedious, and entirely arbitrary narratives of anthropocentrism, which is get born Obey your parents, obey God, obey what you're meant to do, have babies die. You know, we need to break out of that. Yeah. And and if we do that, then we have no knowledge of what kind of potential we could unleash. And so this is this is an argument that resonates both with someone like Austin Osman Speer and also with Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. and spinoza three people that i find incredibly influential and really really yeah. adhere to philosophically yeah. because what they all suggest is that we limit ourselves with very rudimentary comforts yeah and they're not necessary so mm. yeah so that's yeah. what that was about
0: yeah well great well thank you i think it's it's important and and to hear it from, from your mouth, also what, would, especially the definition of reproduction, I find that very fascinating. To be honest, I'm sure you you've seen that good old James Lovelock has written a new book at age hundred. Have you have you have you come across that?
1: I have not. No. No, he
0: he he. he a book called Nova Scene: The Coming Age of Hyperintelligence. Uh, just lately, he's hundred oh, years this... of age.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Is this a, a transhumanist kind of?
0: Perspective uh, I, I haven't read it yet, but I I guess it is exactly. So that's why also I, I was I was putting that now into the into the ring because what. How do you see philosophically and from your occultist point of view also transhumanism? What what's, What is that for you? How do you interpret that?
1: I think that transhumanism is just a different desire for mortality that shows a different manifestation of human exceptionalism.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think that it just shows the same kind of impulses, anthropocentric impulses. Mm-hmm. I am special. I deserve to live forever. My life is incredibly important and valid. And yeah, it doesn't, it just doesn't interest me. It's right. a real, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, not that's the answer. <laughs> Thank you. Um, let's go back to your academic side a bit. Um, yeah, we, we were in the middle of it, of course. But um, in the very beginning, you said you, you, when you came to London and you, could finally enter that to be a london occultist as you call yourself sometimes and at the same time you got that uh, uh, post in 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 for continental philosophy i think it is uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. at uh, at university in cambridge um how does that in your day-to-day academic life work together i I often come across people who are writing very highly academical books about occultism, but uh, are not practitioners. On the other hand, there are others who are practitioners who are not accepted by the academic community. Um, so, a, hey, do you see that problem as well? How do you relate to it, and how do how well, is your personal I, experience?
1: I kind of think about it like coming out because. I – when I arrived, you know, I wasn't – I didn't get made a professor when I was in my 20s. No, sure, yeah. Um, so it was just something very private and then I started doing lectures on occultism and cinema at Treadwells in London, mm-hmm. but I didn't really tell my uni about it because I thought they would think that it was a little, mm-hmm. you know. and And also it did feel because most of my – practice was private with the exception of a few groups i belong to now and again yeah i just kind of kept it in the closet i guess Mm -hmm. um and you know that's why some of the places in london are such wonderful places because you can have a community and but i do agree with what you say that there does seem to be this divide of like historical academic work on occultism and then practitioners who have either like been pushed out of academia and All I can say to that is I had to be a full professor with international renown in order to be able to say I am a practicing occultist and that doesn't make me a weirdo. And so the first keynote lecture I gave on occultism was only a couple of years ago and this is the first piece of work that I've published on my own occult practice And, you know, if I was just starting out as an academic, there's no way it would have been published. So it's still – it's more accepted but it's still something that you have to get to a certain level of behavior before you can start saying actually, you know – Guess what I like. Guess what sp- I'm into.
0: So. <laughs> I spoke to Richard Kaczynski, who I'm sure you you know, um, a few days ago, and he said a very funny comparison. He said it's strange we, we would never expect from a, a theologic a professor of theology and the university uh, if he were if he is member of the Catholic uh, Church that he would leave the Catholic Church to be a professor of theology. But <laughs> so why do you not accept practitioners um, in those, for example, esoteric? I mean, the history of esotericism, et cetera, universities, right? So, um, but you, you never had that problem visibly, so. so.
1: I, I, I didn't, but I can say that there are certain echelons that still sort of give you the side eye and mm-hmm. they're not, like, for example, I would never give a paper on occultism at certain venues I would give them at other ones, but not probably Mm -hmm. my own and um, probably not in Cambridge at all. Um, And uh, the lecture I gave on occultism in London, even though it was sponsored by a university, it was part of an arts festival. Mm -hmm. And I've obviously given lectures at Treadwells and at a few other places on occultism and practice and been interviewed for those kinds of things. But... Yeah, I, it, it takes a certain level to get away with it, sadly. Mm, mm. I don't I, – I do think it's incredibly volatile, though. I think it's changing. I think that we're going to start seeing a lot more people coming out, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and, and you're sort of helping them, them by doing it yourself. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, and it's not easy. And, you know, like I it's so funny because the amount of times that – people who have attacked me because of the new book have used the word witches and insults as if I'm somehow, you know, satanically Mm. possessing people with my work. Mm. And what that shows is that perhaps our familiarity with occultism forgets that everyday normal understanding still identify it with certain fields like Satanism not Satanism as a valid thing, but you know, just yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, satanic ritual abuse or any of those right. other kind of phenomena. Um, and even the, yeah, use of the, word, get...
0: the use of the word witch as an insult shows that yeah. this is still a very anti feminist and and uh, uh, middle agey uh, mind who would say that, yeah, right?
1: yeah, 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 and a, a lot of it is about you know, the disobedience and uh, mm. the disobedience of. A queer witch, who you know? How, how dare our tax money pay for her to be a philosopher when she's yeah. producing? Which is yeah. funny because actually unis aren't funded by the government. But anyway,
0: yeah, yeah, um, yeah.
1: So yeah, it's 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 funny where people go when they want to insult you as an occultist.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, yeah. true. Um, I'm not and-
1: insulted by the word witch, so I I'm, I'm okay with that.
0: Yeah, probably. Others who think like the, the, the ones who insult you with it, they, they, they would go for it, but not yourself, I'm sure. Yeah,
1: yeah. 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 They, they, they can have their insult.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Well, tell me, what is an old school goth? You, you, once, you once defined yourself, I don't know where I read that, but uh, as an old school goth, what is that?
1: Well, so I got into goth when I was very young, probably, I don't know, 10 Mm -hmm. and I started going to goth club. Now, this is one good thing that we did have in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any occult circles. I couldn't join any covens or anything very easily, but we have always had goth clubs, always. Since the late 70s, we have had, you know, when post-punk turned into goth, ever since then we've had goth clubs. And so I started goth clubbing when I was, like, 12 and um, never stopped. (laughs) And... I I became quite good at just whatever country I was in, wherever I went, I could always find the goth club, you know. So – and I run a goth club in London called Culture, Mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, so a goth – an old school goth is somebody that was sort of first generation into the goth scene and the goth music – and never grew out of it, as and you can still see Still
0: surviving yeah. my pictures.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we, we all survived pretty well, actually. Some of us are still going pretty <laughs> Sounds strong. Sounds like it, anyway. Um, we can't dance so bouncy anymore, but, you know, we're still,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, um, do you uh, attract
0: youngsters still there? I mean, yes, nowadays yes. there. Yeah? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, so the club that I run, I we, we get a lot of queer people, we get a lot of people who have sort of grown out of the goth look but they still really love the music and they know all the music and then we get young people who dress up to the nines and, yeah, yeah, it's a really thriving scene still in London Um, and from what I hear still in Melbourne too, so.
0: Great, Great. No, I don't. I don't see that much over here. I'm even not a specialist in the field, but I. I don't really see it. A Germany
1: lot. has a lot of Goths.
0: Yes, probably Germany. Yes, Austria is always much more conservative. <laughs> um, well, talking about that, um, as a kind of a final final chapter in our talk today, um, a little bit of an outlook into into what you see important and necessary for the. Not so near future. Not talking about next week or next five months, but um, in the next ten to twenty years, what do you think for humankind? For 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 occultists, but for non occultists just as well, will be the most important um, steps to take care of and to to look after?
1: What I'd like, which is not what I think will happen.
0: Well, maybe you can separate that. that, Maybe say first what you'd like. (laughs) So
1: what I'd like is that we understand that we are simply a part of the ecology of the earth and we are Mm. no more or less special than anything else and that if we really do think that we're so exceptional, then we can be the first species that takes into its own hands its own extinction Mm. and leaves a legacy of creative care for the rest of the earth. I don't think that's going to happen. Mm. But nonetheless, you cannot write a manifesto unless you have to have belief in what is, you know, what is Mm. right, yeah, Mm. for want of a better word. What I think is going to happen is so difficult to say because what I think is happening right now on a much more kind of philosophical level is people are having to do a couple of things. They're having to learn to live with themselves and their own company without distraction. Mm -hmm. And this is, I hope, making them reflect on whether or not they are really more or less important than the rest of the earth. Mm -hmm. I think that we are becoming aware of our own adaptability and that in the next 10 or 20 years, the value or the appreciation for adaptability will be more than the appreciation and value of power. And I think in terms of occultism, well, I hope, we're definitely going to be seeing a lot more hybrids of these groups, a lot more young people embracing occultism as a completely valid practice, as a form of life, Mm -hmm. and in the most optimistic way, it will get people to move away from any kind of fundamentalism Hmm. of whatever, you know, whether it's political or religious or whatever, that um, occultism will teach us how to live in a much more chimeric way and make us more accountable at the same time because I guess if you're becoming more creative, then you also have to become more accountable because you'd see the effects of your expressions
0: and how can you bring people hmm, difficult how can you bring people in that direction I mean how do you teach them maybe to be more creative and through that creativity make the art that we were speaking about which is actually activism
1: well I think I mean we do it in our teaching um, as I said, I was just in Stockholm and a university paid me to do a chaos magic ritual, which I'm still getting my head around.
2: Yeah, it's it's that unthinkable, is- yeah. <laughs>
1: Amazing. Um, I think that, you know, everyone teaches everyone. This is this is a world where you can learn from every person you encounter and you can teach them something. I think that the, the relationships we have really have to be about Reciprocity and symbiosis, rather than about power. We have to mm. stop living in this very isomorphic idea of "are you above me or below me?" Mm. and you know what what can this relationship get me? And that's just, I guess, basic anti-capitalism. But it's also at the base of a lot of uh, traditional mysticism, and it's a basic tenet of anyone in occultism who practices ways of achieving states that are unlike themselves or that make them feel unlike themselves. I think instead of this cult of self and this polishing of self, the idea of becoming unlike oneself and um, embracing those elements of occult practice Mm
2: -hmm.
1: will make artists of us all. So, you know, that's why whenever I talk to people about it, I try and encourage them just look around and read and, try you know they don't have the 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 16 year old snob in me who used to say you have to read everything and you have to do this just no that's that's gone I don't I don't have that feeling anymore
0: Mm -hmm. and what do we have to look out for from Patricia McCormack any new books on the horizon or anything that well
1: if we (laughs) survive, um I've uh my next book is going to be on queer death activism. Mm-hmm. And I also have been asked to write a sequel to my cinema book because oh. people want me to write on – I haven't written on cinema in such a long time. But right. That's – yeah. So maybe those things, but um, yes, it's, it's, it's hard.
0: Yeah, to, sure, but it's still two good things to, to be on the lookout for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Well Patricia, thank you so much for for that really inspiring talk and it was very very dense and very i 'm sure our our audience has enjoyed that. Thank you for being so open and for being so interesting and uh, well have a lovely time and hope that these difficult moments where we have to stay confined uh, will change soon and the get-togethers will happen soon again and in good health and safety.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me on.
0: Pleasure. Thank you. Bye now. Realism was the band who would be with us for today's show in this episode number 15 of the Thought Hermit podcast and it's season four. Uh, Realism presented at the end of this interview with Patricia McCormack, a uh, piece called Tejas. Tejas, which means Inner Fire in Indian Sanskrit thanks so much to patricia for that wonderful and great talk that we could have with her it was really an enormous pleasure and i really think you should go and get her books have a look on the website have a look on the show notes you find all the titles well links to a page where you find all the titles for her and I read two of those books and there are also a few video interviews of her around on YouTube or so have a look, it's really interesting. Right, uh, friends and listeners, this is the end of today's show, but before I let you go, as always, I want to tell you what's up for next Sunday, up next week, which will be April the 19th. This is already episode 16 next week. Wow, it's going so fast. We'll be two-thirds of that season over because our seasons have now 24 episodes, as I had said earlier. Right, so next week is again time for a new Ex Libris episode. Ex Libris, you know, is always where we present four books to you. And the books you're going to hear more about next week is first a title called Hermetic Herbalism, I think the title says it all, so look out for that. After that, it's Greg, Greg Kaminsky, my friend, who will present his Greg's Choice, as in each of those ex libris episodes. And the book he picked this time is Peter Mark Adams' beautiful, beautiful volume, Mistai, presented by Scarlet Imprint. After that, the third title that we are going to talk about. That's by Azanat Mason, who I really think we should have one day also in an interview on this show. And Azanat's book, Draconian Ritual Book, it's called, will be presented in a talk to Ursula Thierini. Ursula, my friend, who has already presented several books and also been the presenter of those great interviews from Oculture Berlin in December. And to end Ex Libris for April... Uh, we will present the uh, uh, Alistair Crowley's early poetic works, which have been freshly edited, commented and presented by Christian Judet Chris Judice who has already been on this show, also in a short interview at some point. And he has created a new publishing house. He's going to tell us about that and about those early poetic works by Alistair Crowley. So, Lots to look forward about in that new XLiver show next week. Come back and listen again to this show. I'm very happy that you were with us today. I hope you enjoyed the show. I think it was a rather interesting talk. And for today, I wish you a rest, a nice rest of the holidays. Have a good time. I hope all is gonna turn out well for the world and especially for each and each one of you. Now, for now I say, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.